This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to John Richardson and the Future Notes, episode 11, the population special. Uh, we are fully populated this week as ever. I am John Richardson. I'm joined by the Future Notes, Mr. Ed Gillespie. Hello. And Mr. Mark Stevenson. Hello. Yeah, you've got sexy, cold voice. If you say so, John, <laughs> that's very sweet of you. I, would, I wasn't trying to sex you up. That's what does it for me. Mucal blockages. That's <laughs> that's what I'm into. Um, thank you for all your uh, emails this week, which has come from as far as Melbourne and Bonjour La France. Uh, we've had an email from France as well. Um, and thank you. I'm going to milk the excrement puns for just a while longer. So thank you for all your shit emails. Um <laughs> referencing last week's defecation special not as not as intellectual as some of the feedback i would say very often you know people say oh i did my thesis on this perhaps you'd like to read this or here's a guest you might like to book in future uh, barry's email to say i listened to your shit podcast while doing my 10k this morning and the second i stopped running i was desperate for a poo it would be interesting to know whether a podcast had had a similar poo inducing effect on any other listeners so um would it? Why would it? No. <laughs> yeah, I don't really want to clog our email up with that, but what I can do is I can read Barry's email address out and perhaps email Barry direct if you needed a shit after listening to our podcast. Seems to be what he's into. Um, but he said that the relief I felt when having the poo was immediately tempered by the realisation of the damage I would do when I flushed it away. So it's had some effect, the podcast. Well, did you see that, um, did you see that email that came in and said, you, you've changed my life? Yes. Um, not related to the poo podcast has to be said that one. I don't want anyone thinking, you know, changed my life. I've been <laughs> backed up for weeks. I listened to your podcast. Absolute clear out within 10 minutes of the pointless future. I was absolutely spent. No, the, uh, the aforementioned email came from Megan. Um, who who has gone into, uh, followed a different path since she started listening to the podcast. After listening to The Future of Nature, I subsequently applied for a master's in sustainable food and agricultural policy. Mm. I'm one semester in and I've never looked back, although I do get funny looks when I have to confess it was a podcast that made me apply for an MSc degree. But nevertheless, I hope it gained you a few more listeners. That's very nice. Um, she then goes on to ask for a whole bunch of free advice on a course. Did you notice? Know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's becoming um, a bit of a problem, this, isn't it? Because we now we get people asking for free career advice. Now people are changing their careers because of the podcast, and then they're asking for help with their exams, essentially. I mean, I don't know. It's not. I, I think we've made a rod for our own backs here. Exactly. Litiga- litigation can't be far away. 
Saying, <laughs> I, I changed my life on your advice, and now I'm suing you. Yours, Jay Richardson, somewhere <laughs> in the north of England. We had one unhappy, didn't we? One who, oh, uh, yeah. the, the guy who'd gone back into teaching as a result of our podcast and was really pissed off with us about it. I like the other one, the other one from Mark Bentley. He said, you know, this has been a great podcast until now, but I saw the synopsis for this episode and decided not to listen. The future of shit. How old are you? And he said, I'm not, <laughs> he said, I'm not angry. I'm disappointed. I mean, Mark, all I have to say to you is like, if you judge a podcast by the synopsis, then you're somewhat missing the main thrust of the episode. Yeah. yeah. I think you've been a lot politer than you were about him between the three of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think as a special tribute to the laxative effect of our podcast, I think you offered to generate a new sphincter for him to release his <laughs> excrement from. <laughs> Concluding the triumvirate of the most disappointing feedback week we've ever had to a podcast, um, following hot on the heels of why are you so juvenile to talk about poo? Thanks for your podcast. It made me have a big shit. We come to a tweet from CB Powell. Um, you're always likely to get your tweet read out if you've got a name like CB Powell. Um, abbreviate the names and you'll get in. I feel like you forgot to mention, and then you wonder, what what did we forget to mention? Perhaps there's a developing technology in the world of toilets that we missed. No, he says, I feel like you forgot to mention protest turds. Uh, a customer oh. in a restaurant I worked in, while his partner paid the bill, dropped a protest log around a foot away from the bowl to punctuate his dislike for as he planted a flag of a single sheet of toilet roll on top. There you go. He's, he's actually joined up two episodes there, hasn't he? The, or the protest episode that we talked about and the poo episode. He's That's true. <laughs> Maybe it was John Jordan. <laughs> um, it's like an episode of Midsummer Murders, this podcast. Um, but coincidentally, we had an email from CB Powell as well, and I assume it's the same one. Um, much more erudite email and a suggestion of a topic which I really liked, which is the future of disability. Mm. Um so he's uh, visually impaired. Um, he suggests uh, some questions on the future of disability. We've also had suggestions for uh, the future of water this week and various other topics. So keep those coming in. I stress every week we read them and we consider them and they will feature only one episode left this series. So um, probably not this one, but series three is but weeks away and uh, we will take all of those on board then. This week we're here. I'm slightly nervous. It's one of those ones. Mm like when we discuss the future of healthcare, because this is such, and I definitely feel like a layman this week. I know I say that every week, but my views on this topic, which is population, are purely the things I read and hear. Uh, so we're here to, I guess, discuss the big question, and it tops up. I mean, you guys must get absolutely sick of it. I hear it a lot in terms of conversations about the future. Uh, well, we can't possibly have a good future because there are too many of us. So we will we will tackle that topic now. Are there too many of us? Population, question one, are we fucked? Gentlemen, take it away. Okay. Well, yes and, <laughs> and no. And uh, that's as with anything. So what we what you do have to realize is that our, our population in the last sort of um, half century has gone through the roof. It's had this extraordinary growth. So if you go back to around about the time that uh, the modern calendar starts, the population sort of has been estimated to be about 231 million people worldwide back then. But by 1804, so you know, 1800 years later, there were a billion of us. Okay, but then we kind of really got going because the agricultural industrial revolutions were around the corner. So uh, 123 years later, there were two billion of us, 
Uh, 33 years after that, there was another billion of us. 14 years after that, so by 1960, we'd added another billion. So there were 4 billion of us. Okay, And the next billions came even quicker still. They took 13 years, 12 years. And uh, by the time we got to the millennium, if anybody can remember that far back, you know, when we used to have parties and go out and all that kind of stuff, um, we were 6 billion people. 10 years later, 10 years ago, we hit about 7 billion. And today, as we speak, we're just shy of 8 billion. There's 7.8 billion of us in 2020. And if we carry like this, accepted wisdom is the population of the planet will soon if it has not already outstrip our resources and we are monumentally fucked because of our own fecundity that is that is the general narrative i think is that not right ed you, you, you agree? exactly now and i always i always go back to sort of will stephens um from the stockholm resilience center who talked about the great acceleration where all of this stuff goes exponential you know sometime around about 1950 as you're saying we get this massive growth but the key thing with that growth is ecological overshoot you know so the fact that we already use about 1.7 planets worth of renewable resources each year and that actually began in the 1970s that that overshoot moment um and andrew sims from the new economics foundation described this as earth overshoot day you know the day of the year where we actually start to go into ecological debt if you like because we're we're borrowing more than we've got and that was august 22nd uh in 2020 uh which is actually three weeks later uh, than in 2019 but largely because of the pandemic uh and i re-watched the big short you know that movie um which is all about the, the big bet that was done against uh, the, the US mortgage lenders. And in the context of the Das Gupta review on the economics of biodiversity, which came out a week or two ago, we're basically on this sort of big short of ecology uh, because we're into this overshoot period. And we're still adding about 83 million people every year, uh, which is about 1.1% of the population. And that growth, as you say, Mark, is it keeps on getting bigger. And the population has essentially doubled within our lifetimes. So Mark and I were born in the early 70s, and we've got twice as many people now as we had when we were born. In fact, I know exactly when I was born because it was my birthday yesterday. <laughs> uh, and yes, as I hit 50, the world's population has doubled. So that was that was the, the world's birthday present to me, was to say, basically, you've been you know part of the problem of uh, of destroying the world that you love happy birthday um, <laughs> but, but but it is it is worth saying that the rate of growth okay so the amount of which the population is growing is slowing down so we have been adding more people but at a slower and slower rate we had this very big growth and then it all and it, it started to slow down and we'll come to that a bit later because that's actually quite important so every two years the united nations they make these projections for future population growth and uh, they have all these different scenarios and caveats. But if you take what is basically their, their median variant estimate, which is statisticians speak the best guess, they reckon that we'll reach about 9.7 billion people in 2050 and about 11 billion in 2100. And, and then somewhere around in those periods, depending on which caveats you kind of take in, into account or what scenario you go for, uh, the population actually starts to stabilise and then possibly go down. In fact, almost certainly go down. And that's really important in how we get to the, the unfucking of ourselves. So we've got... The, the, I mean, that did seem like a, a fairly rapid slowdown, given that we, we've done a billion in 10 years in the past. Mm. And now we're looking at, in the next 80 years, only adding a few billion. And to go back to the Earth overshoot thing, you talk about... I noticed it was key there, you said that when we use more renewables... So does that mean even if we were living the sort of life that we 
that we are hoping to aim towards and this podcast is has as its sort of utopia where energy is all renewable even in that situation we would have run out by august no no what i was saying is renewable resources uh generally so the idea is you know there is a a, a certain amount of renewable resources we can exploit sustainably so we can utilize a certain number of resources and that can be anything from the food we grow the soil resources you know as well as the energy uh and the idea being that the trouble is at the moment we we are borrowing down on our ecological capital so that's regardless of how we lived that's just to say yeah the, the way we currently lead our lives yeah exactly so we're on 1.7 planets at the moment collectively but obviously if depending on which nations you look at, the nations with a much bigger uh, resource intensity um, are living on the equivalent of four or five planets. Mm. So we can change that around if we change the way we sort of farm and produce our energy and whatever. But at the moment, the way we're going, we're using far too much. Um, and again, we'll come on to some of that unfucking a little bit later. Um, Ed, you've been a little bit researched to this. Which countries have seen the biggest growth of peeps? Yeah, peeps. well, it's... it's uh, peeps! Peeps. Peeps. Nobody says peeps. Wow. 50 has really changed you, hasn't it? You're so down with the kids. I'm going to start saying dude soon. (laughs) So it's no surprise that China, as the most populous country on earth, added another 300 million people over the last 30 years, which would take it up to its current total of about 1.4 billion souls. Uh, And that's a growth of about 20%. But India, over the same time period, added 500 million people, which is a 45% increase which brings them much closer to, to China with around 1.3 billion people at the moment. And India is expected to overtake China by the middle of this decade. China's growth is in fact slowing in line with what Mark was sort of saying in terms of the UN projections. And it's actually projected to be reversed by 2050 with 30 million fewer Chinese uh, by mid-century. So that's quite interesting. But in terms of percentage growth, the winners uh, are Pakistan and Nigeria, who have added 70 and 90 percent growth, respectively, since 1990, which takes them both to around 200 million people. Which, given what we discovered about which countries were having the most satisfying sex at the start of the series, is perhaps unsurprising in Nigeria. Yeah, it was case. true, wasn't it? Nigeria, yeah. they were the, they were having the most satisfying sex. This is weird, though. They're also having the most children. Now, in my experience, and we are all parents, um, is it not the case, John? Ed, that when you have children, you tend to have less sex. I'm a single parent, so I don't have any sex at all. <laughs> I, I, I am really impressed with Nigeria because they seem to be having a lot of satisfying sex and having children. They've they've cracked some kind of parenting conundrum. <laughs> and those those figures you you quoted there, they're all over the last thirty years. So that's roughly in my lifetime. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so I mean, the, the, and the general sense is that you know when you watch a global population counter online. And you watch it sort of ticking relentlessly on. It can feel a bit like watching a doomsday clock at the moment as the numbers ratchet up. Yeah, they're such loaded conversations, aren't they? Even just hearing, you know, oh, well, there are this many Chinese people and there are this many people in Pakistan. I only ever hear these conversations had in a very specific set of circumstances. And it's not with any sort of understanding or leniency or projection. It's always filled with bile and anger. Mm. And, and I, I think that's why so many people, I guess, have suggested this topic, not to suggest that they feel that way. But that agenda is certainly, I haven't heard people just, as you have there, calmly discussing uh, those numbers. And I guess we'll get on to why those numbers have become what they are and what they're going to be like in the future. Mm, yeah. But there's a tension in the air already, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, we will come on to this. There's an awful lot of either privilege and sometimes some outright racism when it comes to talking about population 
um, about who should be allowed to have children, who should be allowed to benefit from the modern world. But we will come on to that because uh, Mm -hmm. there are some other interesting trends which play into that, actually. And one of them is that um, we're all moving and living in different places. So the population is not only growing, but the where it lives has shifted enormously, incredibly. Now more of us live in cities or urban environments than don't, which is a huge turnaround. So back when there were a billion of us, only 3% of us lived in what you would call a town or a city. Now 56% of us do. And uh, the UN's World Urbanization Prospects Report estimates that the number of people living in towns and cities will nearly double by 2050. So that trend's just going to be virtually all of the world's population growth is going to be absorbed by urban areas and cities, particularly in, uh, in the growing countries in Africa and Asia. Yeah, exactly. And there's, like, there's some people have even speculated that we might see the 100 million people city, the uh, city with a population of 100 million people. I mean, again, going back to Nigeria, but Lagos grew from 200,000 people in 1960 to 20 million people today, and it's still growing exponentially. And if you put that in context with London, and I had an argument on a with a guy on a bus once in London who was uh, making some fairly untoward uh, racist comments about how London was full. I gently pointed out to him that actually London had only just reached its its peak of 9 million people, which it had, it had at 1939, only just got back to that, uh, you know, in the late 20 teens. Um, but by 2050, there'll be 100 plus cities around the world of 5.5 million people or more. And actually 1.5 million people urbanized globally every single week and here's your mind-blowing fact uh, in terms of the urbanization question it's like the expected increase in urban land cover during the first decades of the 21st century will be greater than the cumulative urban expansion in all of human history that preceded it so that's how big and burgeoning our cities are becoming However, so some people think that's a, a bad thing, and it does come with some problems. But Ed, you're the the resident ecologist, environmentalist here. Um, actually, some it can be a good thing in terms of the environment, can it not? Yes, exactly. I mean, uh, the the average urban footprint is much much smaller um, than a typical rural one, um, certainly in the developed world. But then the density of cities also matters massively with respect to their carbon intensity. So if you have like they often have in America and places like Australia, these big sort of sprawling, uh, very you know, ranging cities then you can have much, much higher carbon footprints per capita than a, a dense urban conurbation like somewhere like Barcelona. Again, the classic comparison is Atlanta and Barcelona, where you can have a kind of just a transport footprint um, 10 times higher per capita than, than you would um, in, in places which are more compact. But the, the fact is, you know, we are faced with the, these issues around, around growth generally, I mean, Kenneth Boulding, the economist, said anyone who believes in indefinite growth of anything physical on a physically finite planet is either a madman or an economist. And he, he's actually an economist. <laughs> so, <laughs> so something has to give there. And actually, water is in, becoming increasingly critical too. And many people have probably seen reports on the news over the last couple of years of, of several cities sort of teetering on the brink of their own uh, water sustainability. And cities like Cape Town, you know, are almost almost running out of water. And even, again, back in the UK, the densely populated southeast of England is ranked in the bottom 10% of global regions for ability to supply water to its inhabitants because we basically have 25 million people jammed into this quarter of the country living in a cloudy desert. That guy on the bus. Yeah. How excited do you get in that sort of situation? That's like 
that's like your Batman moment, isn't it? When he's just walking down an alley and someone tries to mug him. When you're on a bus and you hear someone mouthing off and you've got the stats up your arm, yeah. that's what you do. Well, I won't tolerate it. You know, it's one of those It's one of those few occasions. It was uh, The scene was, it was a packed, you know, top of a double-decker bus in South London. This old guy gets on and starts grumbling and basically making, you know, racist comments under his breath. And he was sat next to me. And I thought, I'm not, I'm not standing for this. And so I just, you know, I just very gently said, you know, I, I sort of pressed him with a couple of questions. And I said, well, what do you mean it's full? Uh, you know, and then that sort of flushed out. Um, Sat down, aren't you? The real big, the real big, <laughs> exactly. It flushed out the real bigotry. And then I just said, you know, basically we're only back where we were in 1939. Of course, facts don't care about your feelings. And uh, and he got increasingly agitated and, and grumpy with me. But, you know. Is population the topic for both of you where you, where you get to have these moments? I'm guessing dinner parties, conferences where you're meeting, you know, people from businesses and whatnot, and you have a few glasses of wine after the talks. And then is population the one that people are most passionate, but least well-informed about, or is it just general? No, I think the one is that I have the most is what's that John Richardson like? And they're all expecting to say, oh, he's a lovely guy. Um, yes. And uh, yeah, you have to just really come in with the facts. Yeah, they don't, they don't call it tall man syndrome, do they? <laughs> it, it does It does come up a lot, to be fair. I mean, there was usually, and it has to be say, it's usually a gentleman of a certain age who will stand up and say, but what about population? Especially when you've been mm. talking about climate change and biodiversity loss, you know, uh, it's always the one they think that you haven't touched on. Um, and my, my standard responses to that is like it's it's not necessarily about population; it's about consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we'll come back onto that in a moment. But but the reason I think it comes up is, is you know, in, in defence of of those people is it, it seems like a really simple equation. It seems like a very obvious thing. You know, we've got more and more people. Surely that's affecting our ability to live on the planet. And we keep being told about climate change and biodiversity loss. And actually, so that, and there is a there is a direct relationship between the number of people and the amount of resources we use. Yes. Is it the planet though, or is it, you know, to take that example of being on a bus in London, is it more to do with immigration? And it's not necessarily, this is how many people the planet can handle so much as this is how many people on the planet means a percentage of those come to live where I live and I don't want any more people where I live. Well, I think there is a lot of that. And actually, but it's interesting if you talk about population. So um, we'll come to the, the fertility rate. Mine. Not yours. I don't no, want your thoughts. Thought you'd got my envelopes. Then you've been intercepting my thoughts. <laughs> One of the funniest ones I had was actually an event about fifteen years ago, which was being chaired by the Duke of Edinburgh, um, and it, it was a, an event all about the kind of the new cities being built um, across the centre of China to try and distribute a, a growing population away from the already like quite overcrowded east coast of China. Uh, and you know there was this amazing presentation about these new eco cities and these and these new spine uh, of Chinese population down the middle of the country. And the Duke of Edinburgh sort of interjected and he goes, "Can I just clarify one thing?" He said, "These cities they're not for more Chinese, are they?" You know, and you could just, just you could just feel you could just feel the air, everyone in the room just sort of suck in their breath. But it, it sort of it did come back to the point that you know when he was born. There was only about one and a half billion people on the planet. So, you know, mm-hmm. never mind. It's, it, we're talking about it doubling in our lifetime. I mean, he'd already seen it quadruple, you know. Mm-hmm. And obviously the, the presenter then said, well, you know, that's, 
China's population is growing, but um, yes, it's not. We're not creating cities in order to, to encourage the Chinese birth rate to increase in order to fill them. The thing is, this is a systems problem, and of course, as we say in this podcast, like everything is linked to everything else: population growth, the way we farm, democracy. Yeah. But population is one of those things that. Well, you know, all of us think it must be easy to understand because it's just a simple, you know, more numbers, you know, then that's a problem. And and this has been going on really. I mean, the, the debate kicked off probably in the 18th century with a very famous, if you're, if you're a geek, I was going to say very famous, not very famous, but if you're a geek like Ed and I, a very famous essay that was written by the Reverend Thomas Cheers, Robert mate. Malthus. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> he wrote a very famous uh, essay. In fact, he, and he rewrote it. He continually went back to it. So over 30 years, he rewrote it. And it was very influential. It's called an essay on the principle of population, which is essentially the base of the argument um, still. And basically, he said, he, he, he had predicted, he said, look, food production is going to fail to keep up with the population growth at the moment. And... Um, he writes in it, it's an obvious truth, which has been taken notice of by many writers, that the population must always be kept down to the level of a means of subsistence. Yeah. I mean, it's it's what Asimov also noted as well. Isaac Asimov said, the question is not how many people the earth can support, but rather at what quality of life. And, you know, and, and actually... Mark, as you were saying, it wasn't just Malthus, actually. There was another book in 1968 by Paul and Anne Ehrlich called The Population Bomb, which had predicted mass famine and death by the 1980s. Now, that book was full of all sorts of flaws, uh, was sort of derided as being alarmist. But um, Ehrlich has continually defended it as as arguably it brought human population numbers into the environmental debate in some ways. And Ehrlich even said in 2009, he said it was over-optimistic, even though his obviously terrible predictions haven't actually come true. Yeah. So the thing is that why I think this argument is so tricky is because it's actually right and it's also wrong simultaneously. It's right, right? Because, of course, if food production doesn't keep pace with population, then people are going to starve and that's a problem and people get that. But they've also been proved wrong uh, because so far, as the population has grown, we've managed to find ways to increase our agricultural yields to match our needs. Now, that's not to say that in some areas of the world there aren't shocking levels of malnutrition, but this that's a problem of distribution, not production. So like, despite that incredible uh, increase in population since the 1950s we talked about earlier, world food production per capita has actually gone up which is a fairly amazing achievement. But as we have stressed on this podcast, particularly in series one, that's come at a huge cost to our soils and our ecosystems. And so, you know, we cannot carry on this. We've got to have a wholesale shift to ecological methods of farming so we can meet the demand that's coming without fucking the operating system of the planet. And also, we know, in that system, we lose a lot of food and we waste a lot of food. So if we carry on doing the way we're doing it and we carry on growing our population, then yes, we're in real trouble. But at the moment, there's more food than there's ever been. And our crime has been that we've not distributed it, or we haven't distributed it equitably, or we've wasted too much of it. Actually, the, the, the number of calories growing per capita has been going up steadily. People don't believe this, but it's been going up. So in 1960, average worldwide, there were 2,100 calories per person per day. And now that's gone up to 2,800. And that increase is seen everywhere across the planet. Asia's gone up from 1,800 to 2,800. North America, who already were fat to begin with, went from 2,996 to 3,600 per capita a day. So we've we've got enough energy to feed everybody, and we've always found ways to keep pace with that, and we're going to have to invent it again to do that. So it's not – so the argument is right that if we don't keep pace with food production with the population, then it's going to be a disaster. But they're wrong because we always have. But that also brings us back to the ecological debt piece, doesn't it, as well? And, you know, and I think we noted in the food episode, too, that, you know, we already have more than enough food to feed 
10 billion people. And there, there was another um, landmark report on diet and sustainability by um, the EAT Forum and the Lancet, who did a joint commission um, two years ago. And they conclude that it's possible to feed a population of 10 billion sustainably if we revolutionise our dietary habits and food production. But they did say that actually if population exceeds 11 billion people, then actually healthy diets from sustainable food systems um, become increasingly unlikely past that population threshold. So we still, even with radical agroecology, we still run into problems if global population starts to go beyond 11 billion. But it probably won't. But also in in all that, of course, there is global warming, which is coming along, which can act to greatly reduce the uh, amount of crops we can grow as it changes uh, changes the weather and the climate. So, you know, we're at this kind of what I would call a systems crunch. We're going to want more food. But if we produce it in the way we have, we'll undermine our ability to have a food system that will sustain us going forward. So, you know, the problem is that this kind of nuance or system thing doesn't affect, for instance, the mind of a, of a fertilizer retailer who just thinks, well, I'll sell you a label fertilizer because it makes me money, whilst the product they're selling, if you use it too much, which is what they're trying to get you to do, undermines the integrity of the soil. So it's a systems crunch, basically. We're in a, we're in a real kind of like, mm. but in a way, it's, it, it, you know, it, it all forces us to think and innovate. So it's, 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 poss- it's a great opportunity as well. Yeah. Well, we should quote Sir David here. I mean, Sir David Attenborough has not been an uncontroversial figure in this particular debate. Um, you know, and I think we noted earlier that, you know, there's been a sort of terrible post-colonial sexist and even racist tone to a lot of population debate historically, where it can feel like it's a few rich white men telling a lot of poor women of colour how many children they should have. Mm. So you do have to be very careful. And even David Attenborough, you know, has stepped into it by saying all our environmental problems become easier to solve with fewer people and harder and ultimately impossible to solve with ever more people. So um, you've got to be very wary of this patriarchal patrician type of approach uh, of telling people what they can do with their reproductive rights. So is it as simple as saying that the the population growth is in those, you talk about that colonial sort of throwback to the tone of the argument, is the growth in developing countries and it's us saying this has to stop or are we are we growing as well in, in the more developed nations at a similar rate? Is it just that the more people on the planet there are, the more there are to have babies? No, I mean, all the growth, all the growth is in the developing world. I mean, you know, most of the developed world is in either stable or negative population growth. And actually, the way that we sustain ourselves is through migration. Uh, You know, one of the reasons that even though our fertility rate, and Mark will probably have something to say on this, uh, you know, has sort of plateaued, the way that we keep our economy going and and filling jobs in key uh, sectors like the NHS is by getting people to move here Mm. uh, to to, to fill fill those responsibilities. Um, so I, I, I think I think it's, it's very important here. Uh, can you do a Swedish accent, John? Are you good at the Swedish accent? Yes. Yes, <laughs> Dutch, isn't it? I don't know. Let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> so I think one of my favourite human beings um, that ever lived, and, and possibly one of yours, Ed, was was Hans Rosling, the late great Swedish statistician, and he tells a story about his students, you know, who are you know undergraduates studying this very issue, you know, basically posing the same question to him so to quote hands he says in a time when we know so how, how do you do a swedish accent john What's the, what? <laughs> i honestly have no idea i think my policy with accents is always just you know go in just with go. confidence and see what happens okay okay so in a time when we know there's a precious no that's german isn't it <laughs> <laughs> 
he said, in a time when we know the pressures on the environment are growing, my students told me population growth destroys the environment, so poor children may as well die. Now, this is not a statement that they make in class, but afterwards they come up to me and they say, why save the lives of all these small children in these developing countries? Because if they survive, we'll have more people, we'll destroy the environment, they'll emit more carbon dioxide, and it'll be even worse, and then we will all die in the end. Okay, so that, and that's kind of that's kind of the logic behind a lot of the argument, and it makes you know a kind of simple sense. He's got but, some pretty hard nosed students. I was going to say, students sound like dicks. <laughs> um, anyway, the, the problem with that logic says said Hans was it's not just it's not moral; it's that it's wrong, right? and and here's why. So uh, as we've already hinted at, at uh, already in this podcast, the population as it's growing seems to be stabilizing. Okay, the rate of growth of the population is slowing down actually dramatically, and already. The native population in many countries, in fact, about 100 countries, is falling. Okay, So it's a really important figure to keep in mind here, which is 2.1. Right? 2.1 is the number of children, on average, that every woman needs to have to keep the population static. Okay? Now, back in 1965, the world fertility rate for the world as a whole was five. Okay, So we were overshooting that massively, hence this massive growth in population. Today, in 2020... It's at 2.4, and that's part of an ongoing trend that sees us reach 2.1 sometime in the next uh, 30 to 50 years, depending on which projections you look at. Has it been 2.4 for a while? And I'm judging this on my uh, knowledge of British sitcoms from the <laughs> mid-90s. <laughs> I would say that actually that probably was the fertility rate in the UK back then. But right. Without- entire world where it was it was probably higher it's probably about three back then or so but now the world is, is at 2.4 so uh, if you go back to 1955 the number of countries where fertility rates were less than that crucial 2.1 figure there were five like today over a hundred countries are not replacing the native population they include countries like ireland brazil the united states china uh, the uk germany russia japan spain south korea so we're, we're seeing those nations absolutely drop their native populations. And this is a part of a really important trend. Almost half of all people now live in a country or area where that total fertility rate is below the replacement rate. And there's a really important point off the back of that about the huge impact of relatively minor shifts over the longer term. Because if on average, every other family has one fewer child, we have a population 3 billion people smaller by 2100 than the current median projection. So that would be a population smaller than today's global headcount by the end of the century. Mm. So we're, we're probably looking at country, uh, the population dropping at some point. Um, but the countries with the highest numbers of birth are still the rapidly growing ones, Okay, the ones that are sort of urbanising and you know, improving their economies and whatever in the traditional sense. You know, so you, so in, in Africa in particular, you, you dominate the fertility table across Africa. Fertility rates of between four and seven are quite common. But these two, they're dropping as well. So, you know, it's about 2065 where the whole world hits 2.1. That doesn't mean the population will start to drop at that moment, specifically because obviously a lot of us are living longer. But that trend is unequivocal, that the population is going to stabilise and drop unless something drastic happens. Or we absolutely fail to help those countries develop to a standard of living like our own. Yeah, well, this is the problem. If we help them urbanise and develop in the way that we have, then they're undermining the carrying capacity of the planet because we're overshooting. So we have to do that growth um, in a way that's sustainable and ecological. There's a question here, which is why is it as countries um, get more prosperous in inverted commas, okay, why does the population rate go down? Why does the fertility rate go down? 
Because one argument would be, well, if you're richer and whatever, you can afford to have more children and you've got a bigger house and whatever. There's just more to do, isn't there? If you live in a nice, you know, there's more cinemas and there's more theatres and more pubs, just less need to have children. If, you know, if you can watch the football of Marcelo Bielsa, for example, and then have a pint in a pub, you don't need anything else in your life. Is that it? <laughs> it's a replacement for children. It's, you know, it's strange that there's, there's some deal of truth in that, John. <laughs> so, oh, I got so, so lucky then just to come back in. I spent the last 10 minutes not listening after I Googled 2.4 children. So to, to make my first point and have it be right, I'm flying. People will argue about this a lot, okay? But um, in my first book, I researched this quite a lot, and I kind of looked at all the arguments, and it, it came down to, I think, four intertwined themes first you get falling rates of child mortality so as your nation gets uh, more prosperous or better off you get less um, childhood disease you get less um, childhood accidents all that kind of stuff so you're actually having less children die which you'd think well hang on if they're dying surely population is going up but actually when less children are dying sort of as an habitual thing in your nation you don't feel compelled to get you know have as many because in many nations having as many children as possible is a hedge against the fact that a number of them are going to die if you live in a nation where actually they're not going to then you don't feel necessarily that you need to have a big family um, again increased life expectancy is really interesting so people in prosperous tend to live longer again you think that increase the population but actually it seems that the longer we live the less we feel our mortality the less we feel we need to replace ourselves but i think the really crucial thing is that when you get in nations that are urbanizing or whatever you get much more female emancipation you get women in more in in jobs you get women with access to birth control better health care and that has a huge downward effect on the number of children on average, that a woman will have. It's all about education, 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 isn't it? There's a direct correlation between the number of years a woman spends in education and how many children she ends up having. Mm. Um, so, you know, again, when we look where the, the growth rates are high in Africa, on average, African women with no education have 5.4 children. Women who've completed secondary school have 2.7, and those who have a college education have 2.2. So when family sizes are smaller, that also empowers women to get the education as well, to take work and improve their own economic opportunities. So, yes, smash the patriarchy and liberate the women. I haven't heard that point since my own, I think it must have been geography and I didn't take it at A-level, so we're talking GCSE and earlier. I remember hearing that point about global populations and how, you know, certain areas only men could work and therefore families, were, you know, keep having babies until they had boys because it would be the boys that would bring back the money. I remember a conversation then about the effect of, that on global population but i don't remember any subsequent lessons on how you go about raising standards of living in those countries or what our responsibilities as a, a powerful and influential nation were now you hit the conundrum because politicians will go this is why we have to have economic growth this is why we have to have constant economic growth because it's the only way to raise people out of poverty and reduce the population all that kind of stuff and you know uh, that and that's where you get into these Unnuanced arguments. So, if we carry on, as I said before, if we carry on doing it the way we're doing it at the moment, you know, we can go into these nations and we can, uh, you know, say, "Oh, here, have our Western capitalist model," because uh, it will be, you know, bringing great prosperity and, and everyone live longer, and your, your birth rate will go down. Then you're just you're just storing up problems for all of us. So, you know, what Ed and I have been trying to do is, is shift the world from a the kind of unsustainable growth to a much more Kate Rayworth type model of, you know growth within the system or, or, or prosperity within the system that's also a place where people in poverty can you know get out of that and have these like because the, the problem with the argument has always been seems to be you either you have economic growth and people get out of poverty or you don't have economic growth and you keep people in poverty and actually that's not true 
Um, yeah. But that's this simple binary argument that's used by the left and the right to justify equally ridiculous positions. You can have prosperity without constant growth if you think about economics differently in the way that Kate Rayworth does, for instance. Yeah, otherwise you end up with like being like the American general in Vietnam, don't you? Saying, you know, we had to destroy the village in order to save it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're clearly on to the, the unfucking and how we unfuck. But largely at the moment, I mean, obviously there's a massive role to play of the development. But over here, it seems like we just, we're not having the conversation right and we're not, we're not making the right point. So I guess it's, it's education here, is it? Hmm. I think the reason people don't get educated about it is because I, I don't think it's really taught very much at school. It certainly wasn't I, I was there. And because the argument is so deceptive, you know, it seems so obvious, like more people is, is a bad thing or population growth is a bad thing. Um, people shut up. Well, of course, it's obvious. I think it's also, you know, there's also a philosophical thing here. It's like, you know, people are amazing. Um, and, you know, you don't necessarily want to be uh, refusing the existence of, of new people and the next and next generation because they'll be full of beautiful, lovely people, hopefully. And so there is an element there where you don't want to be kind of artificially constraining people's right to have kids. Yeah. And, and what tends to happen, of course, is people who are already living in some level of privilege saying those people over there can't have what I've got because it'll, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll ruin the planet for me. It's kind of like, well, that's not really a very nuanced or moral argument um, from where I'm seeing. You talked about artificial restraints on people's ability to have children. And we've, we've seen that in recent years in China. What effect has that had? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, the, the one child policy in China was clearly you know, effective, as we were saying, you know, there's going to be 30 million fewer Chinese uh, by the middle of the century. But China also has a massive um, aging population and the, the fertility rate there, and it's a bit hard to estimate it in China for some reasons of uh, transparency, but they estimate the Chinese fertility rate is around about 1.4. Um, they have sort of ended the one child policy now and tried to encourage a two child policy to try and alleviate the pressure of their aging population and all the economic labor force issues which will emerge um, as people grow older but not much has happened actually and i think there's there's one thing here around culture change you know it's not simple and so the chinese have got into a cultural habit of only having one child per family and there's there's less there's less desire to have a bigger family. And in, in other senses, in another context, you know, intervention really works. You know, Thailand, for instance, reduced its fertility rate by nearly 75% in just two generations. And a lot of that is to do, and it took two generations to do it, but with targeted, creative and ethical family planning. So again, it's changing the models of what a desirable family size is, again, liberating and empowering women and, and trying to undermine and undercut some of that male dominance of family practice. Mm. I mean, and, and, and as we talked about urbanization as well, you know, cities all over the world have lower birth rates than, than rural areas. So again, the more we urbanize, it has another downward effect just because I know cities are more expensive, less places to... Uh, put your kids, you know, lots more female emancipation happening in cities and whatever. In fact, there's a, a book by two Canadians called uh, Daryl Bricker and John Ibbotson, and they've written a book basically warning about the empty planet in the shock of the global population decline. So uh, they say, we do not face a population bomb, but a population bust, a relentless generation after generation culling of the human herd. Nothing like this has ever happened before. So it's interesting that you're seeing people saying the exact opposite of uh, what Malthus and Eldrick were saying, saying that 
actually, this is going to be bad. And actually, if you have a, a, an infrastructure built for so many people and you only stick half the people in it, that has problems as well. I mean, I remember going to Detroit, uh, which you know is a city for 1.7 million people that now only has 600,000 in it. And, you know, and, and it's famously you know, falling apart around its inhabitants' ears and having to do all sorts of radical things to get, to get it back on its feet. So um, you, know, you don't want to have too quick a decline because then you've got all this infrastructure that um, becomes problematic. So when you yeah. first said that, I thought it sounded ridiculous, but you're saying it's, it's, is it that we're having both? We're having, we're having to deal sort of globally with a, with a population cap in terms of what we can produce, but you're saying also there is in cities, this is happening already. Because when you first said that quote, I thought that's not going to happen, is it? A population bust? 23 countries can expect their population to halve by the end of the century. Exactly. It's going, to be, it's going to be a really mixed bag. You know, I mean, Japan will shrink from 128 million people to 53 million people by the end of the century. Italy, Spain and Portugal are also expected to lose half their populations. Um, the number of Thais and South Koreans is also forecast to halve. So, you know, there is some real surprises. And it's, so it's, it's a very mixed picture when you go around the globe. You've got some places where population is burgeoning, but some where it's stabilising or, or expected to be in very rapid decline. Is that just to do with fertility, right? Then that's to do with migration as well, is it? It's not so much people leaving those countries. No, if you look at those ones, they're not people uh, who are uh, having lots of people em- emigrating. Um, it is just a declining fertility rate and and very rapidly aging populations. A lot of old people. I mean, you, you know, you can see this impact in the pandemic as well. One of the reasons that Italy got hit very hard, and one and one of the factors in the UK is also you know a, a, an old population or a, a higher percentage of demographic people who are in the very vulnerable groups, which meant that our countries seem to be hit harder. I mean, there's a whole multiplicity of effects going on there, but certainly uh, a skewed population towards. Uh, geriatrics didn't help why are we not winning these conversations on migration then if you say you know you've got obviously this just huge resources of untapped talent as you say wonderful potential planet saving minds being born in countries that we absolutely depend on for our not just our day-to-day running of our nhs and things but the future of the planet how are we not winning those arguments it blows my mind i know well, Im- immigration has saved europe i mean you know i mean and, and very literally very recently because the guy who came up with the first covid vaccine was a turkish migrant you know so it's it is extraordinary that we've still failed to make these these credible cases for these for these very real and very wonderful things uh, and you know and the trouble is you have the farages of the world who step in and exploit the deceptive simplicity uh, of the debate. I think it's back to that. It is exactly the deceptive simplicity. I mean, often in in my work, I will use the concept of Occam's razor, which is you know take away all the complication and get to the center you know, the thing that seems the most simple, and that's that's probably a good place to start. But population is not one of those things, and so and, and I think you know it's very hard to argue somebody away from something that looks intrinsically obvious. We started off the pockets, but it's intrinsically obvious, isn't it? You know, the more people we have, the worse it's going to be. Well, yes and no. And that's that's very very difficult to to argue around. And then if you add into that a little bit of prejudice and somebody turning up on your street who's you know got a job and maybe one of your family hasn't, they speak a slightly different language. Then you've got this breeding ground for emotion to, to completely overtake fact. And and that's of course where your populists get in by you know saying, well actually it's it's that immigrant's fault. Actually, the you know that immigrant is <laughs> is probably helping keep the economy afloat. Um, so yeah, I think it's I think it's back to that very beginning. Is it, it seems like a deceptively simple argument that's actually wrong, 
And that is always, what was it, who was it said that a little knowledge is dangerous, but ignorance is lethal? So what, bringing it, bringing it back to, because we're tending towards the, the end of the show, and this is where we offer advice for individuals, but just to bring it back to the, the life of, I guess, most of our listeners will be that they are in the, the developed nations that are facing decline. And one thing I hear a lot from friends of mine who don't have kids is, well, I don't have kids, therefore I can. And it's sort of a a balance of climate things. Well, I can I can take that flight or I can have that car because I, my carbon footprint is so drastically reduced by virtue of the fact that I haven't got kids. Should we be saying to them, well, actually, it's it's not a good thing to not be having kids? I, I would say if they're thinking like that, it's a very good idea they don't have kids because they're obviously idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Let me give you a list of names. Yeah. I mean, the other side of that is that, you know, there are people who are – you know, there are also people who are on birth strike, you know, because of their concerns over climate change. Mm. Um, and, and there's also, again, a complex picture from the pandemic. You know, some people have, have delayed having a family uh, until things settle mm. um, at the other side of COVID. Or, and, but equally, others have pushed on, you know. I mean, not just getting a puppy as a surrogate child, which, you know, vast numbers of people across the UK seem to have done. But I actually have a friend who works as a sexual health nurse who described a large number of patients having long-term birth control like coils and hormone implants removed this year um, and actively pushing ahead to have kids. So, again, it's complex. Mm. We've covered a lot, I think, and it seems like one of those where actually we could probably do two or three podcasts on this. And I know a lot of listeners will will hear certain topics raised that will trigger things we've already discussed food quite a lot but i know we have a lot more to discuss in future podcasts about food and also we discussed aging and i think there's a plan to do a separate podcast on the future of aging and getting old so so hold tight for that but one thing that i think is a fairly new topic that's come up in this one is this idea of moving to cities and and the benefits of that because again it's something that i've seen as these densely populated areas and, and we've talked about in terms of sanitation as I haven't seen that as as a broadly positive thing that we all live in these big spaces. No, exactly. And I think the biologist E.O. Wilson talked about it as, you know, about creating this space for nature. You know, as I say, if we can live more efficiently and more effectively when we're gathered and with all the kind of social, cultural and, and integration and wonderful creativity that comes from from urban living, then he, he described it as the half the earth project. We actually can create a lot more space for the wild nature that we've neglected and that we've been impinging upon, um, which brings all sorts of benefits in terms of ecosystem resilience. And he said, you know, this is all about one word, poetry. It's poetry. Oh, poetry oh, it's all about one word. He didn't say it was about progress. We'll call that a 90th minute winner. He's nodded it in <laughs> at the back post. Stevenson reeling. He said, he said, he said, he also said, that's what the world has to offer us is poetry, a whole series of mysteries, of possible discoveries of phenomena, of unexpected events and objects and things and living organisms and so on, and infinitude almost on this planet waiting out there to be enjoyed. And there's so many of this in the world waiting to be explored and savoured and described. And that's what actually, you know, population sanity and population distribution might be help us to create so we can have the best of urban living together whilst also creating the bounty and fertility of ecosystem resilience and the fecundity of nature outside. Yeah, that is how we get out of here. We have we have smarter, better cities and much better agroecological way of interacting with the rest of the land. However, there is also a danger there in that part of the problem we have is that people who live in cities tend to be less connected to 
nature they don't see it so much yeah. they don't feel it in the same way so we also have to find a way to you know reconnect ourselves with that nature so we so we honor it more so one of the things for instance say if you've got kids is try and get them into some kind of forest school because you know that appreciation and connection with the beauty of nature is, is one of the fundamentals of us looking after it yeah and i think there's, there's something really important here too as well about seven generation thinking it actually comes from american indian culture but many people misinterpret it as it being you know worrying about the world and the impacts of what you do now seven generations hence but I think there's a much more powerful way of thinking about it, of of you being the linchpin generation in a span of seven generations. So our great grandparents were, you know, alive in 1950, and our great grandchildren will probably be alive uh, in the middle of the 21st century. So our generation is that hinge, and actually, as we've heard, you know, we could be transforming this issue by the middle of the century. And so it could be that we're just happen to be living at a particularly mad time at the end of a period of huge explosive growth where there becomes a greater degree of moderation and management uh, and efficacy that, that comes to that comes to the fore in the, in the second half of those three generations. Well, that seems a very positive point to end on. It's very rare we end with, you know, the, the idea that our generation is, is the sort of the hinge at which things start to get better so clearly. So I will welcome that. It seems like the, the advice for an individual and what they can do differently tomorrow is to listen to this podcast again and regurgitate these these facts and this argument. It seems a lot of it in terms of how we address population in our country is just education on the global situation more. Um, is there anything yeah. more? I mean, I, what I don't want to take away is the idea that I need to have 1.1 children in the next week. Um, otherwise, I'm failing to hit my average. I don't think you should have any more children, John. I think that's a very you strong You sound piece. so much like Lucy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we've been talking. <laughs> See, the whole podcast was basically to get to this episode. You don't know that. We're being paid by Lucy. <laughs> ah, I see. That makes a lot of sense. It's about being more informed and looking behind behind stuff. I think every time you feel, and we all do it, every time you feel the hint of prejudice coming into your thinking, that's probably a warning sign. And I think population is one of those places where it happens the most and most easily for all of us. And therefore, I think, you know, when that comes in, it's like, okay, I probably need to think a bit more deeply about this or be, be a bit more informed. So, um so yeah, and challenge the man on the Clapham omnibus. Well, Definitely. it leads to it is that view that the man on the Clapham omnibus somehow made a choice to be born here and did something right, and therefore has more claim to certain things on the planet because you know if, if other people wanted to live here, then they would have been born here. And it's it's such a basic, but I, I do think there's a lot of people who genuinely feel like that. Well. You know, that's not my problem because I had the good grace to be born in yeah. insert name of town. I find I do find that it really annoys me that people are sort of you know they're proud of their nationality. You know, I'm an English bloke and I feel very attached to 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 English things, you know, like warm pints of beer and fish and chips and you know and Monty Python and well, fish uh, and chips yeah. is French, but don't worry about that. It's, <laughs> the Huguenots bought a fish and chips. Yeah, all right, all right. I'm just in the middle of a flow. Two nil. Yeah. <laughs> So I, feel, I certainly feel a cultural identity that's very strongly English. But when people say, oh, oh you've got to be proud to be English, so what, why? Because I, I was given that at birth. I didn't earn mm. it. I didn't get, you know, it's not like I've spent my lifetime fighting to become English and, and defining English as a wonderful thing. It's like, well, I was given that at birth. 
so that that concludes the uh, the conversation. Um, we end as we always do with with pointless futures. Uh, what what do you think this week? What is the pointless future for the planet where population is concerned? Uh, I think it's probably populism about population is the pointless future. So we're done there. It's, a, it's alliterative. Prick the pompous bubble of population populism. So population populism is the pointless future. Yes. Because it doesn't actually solve the problem. In fact, if you were to embrace that way of thinking, you'd probably be adding to the problem that you're complaining about. Good news for the podcast, though. In terms of Series 3, these problems getting worse. (laughs) You know, I mean, your own futures are basically pointless, aren't they? Because if you make the world a better place, what are you going to do? Just live in it and be happy. I've always said that, though. It's like, you know, the purpose of my job is to put myself out of a job. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point, John. I've not thought about it like that. But what you're saying... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now it's, it's funny though you say that it is funny because i remember having a conversation with a uh alzheimer's the researcher and we're talking about a cure for alzheimer's and they said oh, i don't think we really want one of those do we no it's like what you're, you're from you know an alzheimer's research trade he says yeah but if, if they find a cure what do i do i mean my whole cv <laughs> it's about alzheimer's research this is becoming a sort of specter style bond conspiracy <laughs> where the heads of all these charities are actually fighting tooth and nail to prevent cures and progression being found in all these things and i mean we've we've talked about conspiracy theories possible future episode on them i think that might be so we'll be back next week it will be the final uh, in this run of podcasts so we're going to end with a sort of any questions answered episode so it can relate to the topics we've covered in this series or indeed the first series if you're late listening and you want the right to reply on any of those or it can relate to absolutely nothing at all as we've heard do be careful asking for free career advice because uh, these dogs are off the leash and very very angry um, but get in touch with uh, any questions you have and next week we will end with uh, a special episode where we respond particularly to your emails thanks for your company this week here's how to get in touch you can reach us by email at hello at john and the future that's hello at john j-o-n and the future notes all one word dot com we have our own show twitter account which is at j and the f and of course you can reach us individually on twitter too i am at ron richardson john richardson with the first letter swapped around that's what i've done there and you can reach ed and mark at the following i'm ed gillespie at frucool which is at f-r-u-c-o-o-l and i'm mark stevenson and you can find me at optimist on tour And there we go. We will be back next week for the final in this run, the second series, if you will, of uh, John Richardson and the Future Notes. Thank you for your company this week. Thank you, Mark and Ed. Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Um, Take care of yourselves, each other and the planet. And from myself, Mark and Ed, have a wonderful week. (laughs) 